Good morning, brothers. Good, good to see you again. Uh, maybe we should start this time by everybody standing, going up around, and everybody giving their own testimony. <laughs> maybe your wife's testimony, too. But, but PJ, we won't go over, okay? I've been asked to give two talks, but pretend like they're one talk. So I'm giving one talk on membership and discipline. It's one talk, but it's going to sound like two talks squished together. Let's talk first about membership. All right? Uh, what is it? Does it really matter? Why is it critical for being a healthy church? Some of the questions we're going to ask. First question, is it actually in the Bible? Just one or two of you. You're on an elevator. Somebody says, is it really in the Bible? What do you say? You're on an elevator. You got to do it quick. One, what, what do you say to convince them it's in the Bible? First Corinthians 11 talks about the body. Okay. Yes, brother. A little louder. Okay, Acts chapter 2, verse 41, 3,000 were baptized that day and added to their number. What number? Well, apparently the, the church in Jerusalem, right? They knew who they were. Had it all in Excel spreadsheets or something, I don't know. Anybody else, what are you saying on the elevator to say, that, yes, this is in the Bible? Okay. Hebrews 13, 17, elders will give an account, leaders will give an account for who? All the Christians in a city or for their own flock, presumably their own flock. So I trust you guys are familiar with the text. If, if, if I'm on that elevator and I got 30 seconds with you, what would I say? I'd point to the church discipline texts in Matthew 18, 1 Corinthians 5, remove from something. What do you remove from? Well, presumably... It's membership in the church. I, I point to that Acts 2.41 text, being baptized into their number. You could point to all the greetings, all of Paul's greeting, to the church in Corinth. Who's that? Who's the church in Corinth, right? Who's the church in Philippi? And so forth. We could go through all the greetings. And so they knew who they were. This is, this is clearly in the Bible. It's uniform throughout uh, Scripture. The church that meets in the house of Gaius. Who's that? Who, who counts as the church? Now, if I have more than 15 seconds on an elevator with you, and I'm trying to answer that first question, is church membership actually in the Bible? I might agree with you and say, you know, it's, it's not in the Bible. At least not what you probably think it is. I think when people talk about church membership, usually they have something more programmatic in mind, Costco membership in mind, gas station rewards program in mind. Hey, give us your loyalty, we'll give you a discount on your gas, fuel up here once a week, right? No, that, that is not in the Bible. That is not what church membership is. It's not a packet. It's not an interview. It's not any set of forms that typify how you do it in your place. Now, we, we all have different ways of doing it in our place, but, but there is a biblical essence to it. What is that biblical essence? Well, we start digging through the text and 
looking at images for the church like a body. Whatever membership is, it's going to feel body-like with the arm connected to the shoulder, connected to the torso, and so forth. It's a family. What is church membership in the Bible? Well, it's something with brothers and sisters. It's Paul telling Timothy, encourage an older man as, he, as, as you would to father, younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters. Okay, so what, whatever membership is, it's going to have a brother, sister, father, mother feel to it. Uh, the church calls the, the Bible calls the church a holy nation or the people of Christ's kingdom. So it's going to look and feel like citizenship. We submit to the leaders, we watch over one another as we submit to the king's words. That's what I'm looking for in the text. On and on, we could go through some 90, 100 different images for the church by one scholar's uh, descriptions. A flock, a temple, a people, a vine, a pillar and buttress and truth, a lady and her children, vine and branches. That's, that's what membership is going to look like, feel like. It is no club. It is no gas station rewards program. What is church membership? Well, you need all of these images because there's nothing like the church, right? This Holy Spirit indwelt, blood-bought from before the creation of the world, predestined people coming and covenanting together and taking responsibility for one another in real time, in real place, in real flesh and blood. There's nothing like it, and you need all of these images to describe what the church and its members are. What is, what is church membership? It is the church. You want me to define membership? I just, I just need to define a church, right? That, that's how these things work together. Obviously, we're, we're all a bit anti-institutional, though, these days. Jonathan, can I be a part of the family of God everywhere, the, the, the body of Christ everywhere? It isn't isn't that enough? Well, the short answer to that question is no. Let me give you two reasons, one from the individual's perspective and one from the church's perspective. First, from the individual Christian's perspective, I don't know how you can do what the Bible calls you to do apart from a self-conscious commitment to a local church. So, so the brother referred to Hebrews 13, 17 and calling to submit to your leaders. Well, which leaders are those? There needs to be a self-conscious commitment for that to be the case, right? Ephesians 4 says we're to build one another up by speaking the truth and the love. And Ephesians 5, in the context of addressing one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, we're to submit to one another. Well, again, which Christians are those to whom I submit to? Which Christians are we to build up and submit to with our words? All the Christians in a city or all the people who gather regularly in a place and identify as one of us. Yes, I am a part of the church in Corinth. I am a part of the church that meets in Gaius' house. Or, or no, I'm not a part of that. And, and, and brothers and sisters, you know we could go command after command in the New Testament about the corporate life of the church. And I'm just going to keep saying over and over again, I don't know how you do that apart from a self-conscious covenanting, joining, agreeing with a body of believers. That's from the individual's perspective. What about from the church's perspective? Well, the Bible actually gives local churches authority 
to bring people in and to see them out. It exercises that authority of bringing them in through baptism and seeing them out when necessary by excommunication and overseeing them while they are there through the supper. When we baptize someone, we baptize them into the name of the Father, Son, and Spirit. We, we give them the Jesus name tag. We give them the Jesus jersey, right? We're, we're now identifying with one another. When I was a kid and I'd, you know, my brothers and sisters would go to somebody's house and my grandma would be taking us, she, she would say before we went and make sure you act like a leman. For some reason, grandma thought being a leman meant something. We tried to disabuse her of that idea. Nonetheless, you know what she meant. Well, who gets to act like a Christian, like a Jesus follower? Well, it's those who have been baptized into the name. They got the name tag. They got the uniform. Right? And, and then who is it who gathers in the name? Where two or three are gathered in my name? Well, it's, it's those who are baptized into the name. The Lord's Supper also isn't an individual act, an opportunity to sort of shut your eyes, have this turbocharged quiet time. It's just me and Jesus now, and I'm taking this, and I really feel his presence, his grace on me. No, it's, it's a corporate, communal, church-constituting, church-revealing event. Look at, look at, or just listen to 1 Corinthians 10, verse 17, because there is one bread. We who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Bread. Let's unpack that for a second. The main part of the sentence is, we who are many are one body. We who are many are one body. How do we know we who are many are one body? Well, because there is one bread. In fact, the verse says the same thing twice. We know we are one body because there is one bread, and for we all partake of the one bread. Partaking of the one bread affirms, reveals, shows that we are one body. I remember one occasion in which I was um, working as hall monitor for the evening service at our church. And I was standing out in the hallway. And I'm not a very good hall monitor because you're supposed to like be walking around and making sure kids are okay and checking the bathrooms and so forth. And I just kind of stand outside the main hall and look through the glass door and listen on the speakers. So I'm, I'm kind of neglecting what I should be doing because I'm interested in the service, right? And that particular evening, they were having the Lord's Supper, and uh, the, the servers came out to the hallways to go up to the balconies, and they handed me a little cup and, you know, wafer. And I thought, well, I'm, I'm watching. I'm here. I think I can go ahead and participate. And I had a couple of buddies with me out in the hallway. And I said, hey, guys, and they, they took the, the cup and the wafer, too. I said, guys, tell you what, this is what we're going to do. As we take the supper, I want us to look at each other and then when we're done, let's hug, because this is a corporate thing. And they're like, dude, that's weird. And I'm like, I know, I know. Let's, let's just try it, though, okay? So we all received it, and the, and the person leading the supper from the front did his thing, and then we took it, and we looked at each other, and then we hugged. And you know what? It was weird. <laughs> I'm not saying you should do it again. I wouldn't do it again. I, but you get the point. This was a Capitol Hill Baptist church. You, you might have been leading. I was in the hallway. 
little kind of two sites there. You got the main hall and the hallway. Anyway, <laughs> the supper shows who the church is. It is a church-revealing, church-illumining, church-spotlight. Hey, nations of, the na nations of the world, do you want to know who the church is? Look to these people who are baptized into the name and then receive the supper. These are the members. The baptism and the supper are your signs of membership. Keep, keep baptism and the supper and membership together. Almost always. There's going to be exceptions. Baptizing the Ethiopian unit, sure. Ordinarily, you're going you're to keep those things together. Okay? And it's the local church, not the individual Christian, the local church that has the authority to say who the Christians on planet Earth are. These, as I say, are the signs of membership and how the church goes public. Why can't you just be a member of the body of Christ or the family of God apart from the self-conscious commitment to a local church we call membership? One, because it's the way you fulfill the Bible's commands, the one another commands. Two, because it's the local church whom the Bible authorizes to publicly recognize and affirm who the church on planet Earth is. The universal church shows up, becomes visible, becomes concrete, in the local. It's like the conversation we had last night, remember, where I said there's a positional righteousness that you possess, and then we followed that little flow chart, and that shows up in your progressive righteousness. The, the, the universal creates the local, right? The gospel creates the local. We have the same dynamic going on here. That's why 1 John 4, John says, don't say you love God whom you can't see. If you don't love your brother whom you can see. Question two, what exactly is church membership? Well, in formal terms, membership is a church's affirmation and oversight of an individual believer's profession of faith. Okay, kind of the skeletal structure of the thing. It's an affirmation, a word of affirmation. Yes, Joe is a believer. And in an ongoing way, the oversight of Joe's following after Jesus. Make sense? So affirmation, baptism, oversight, supper. That, that's the formal skeletal structure of what church membership is. And the Christian is submitting to that affirmation oversight. So affirmation oversight and then submission to that affirmation and oversight. And that, that's what we would call the covenant of church membership. Very practically, that means when somebody comes to join your church, you want to make sure you know what the person believes. Who do people say that I am, says Jesus to the disciples? And they gave different answers, and then finally Peter says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus says, that's right, the Father in heaven told you that. You're having that kind of conversation when people are coming in to join your church. We call it a membership interview. My, my friends in Uzbekistan in a house church, no building, no sign, no full-time pastors, no church name, just 20 brand new Muslim converts in this little house church. Different set of forms there, right? 
They didn't have a formal church membership interview. They didn't have a church set of church membership classes. They, they didn't have any of that. Nonetheless, there was, there was a time of getting to know this individual, making sure this individual understood the gospel, making sure this individual understood what it meant to, to be a part of this body, asking this individual to count the cost following after Jesus, and then finally a conversation among those 20 house church members. It looks like Farhod is, wants to be baptized and join us. Has anybody else spent time with Farhod? Yeah, yeah, yes, I have. He, 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 he is dedicated to following after Jesus. Well, has Farhod counted the cost? Well, he knows that when he's baptized and joins us, then his father is going to cast him out of the house, maybe even worse. But he, he says he's ready for that. Well, friends, I, I think we should baptize Farhod and bring him in and declare him a Jesus follower through baptism and the supper. What, what, what do you all think? Nodding heads, yes, yes, let's do that. Okay, that, that's very different. The, the, the forms are very different there than they are in Chevrolet where I live or, or Capitol Hill or wherever you live. But you have the same thing going on. You have an affirmation an agreement to continue to oversee, and then a submission to that affirmation and oversight of Farhod's faith. And what we see throughout the Bible is that God is very interested in making sure it's clear who his people are. There's always an inside and an outside to God's people. So whatever forms you use, you want to make it clear. This is the inside and that is the outside. Garden of Eden, there was an inside and an outside. Noah's Ark, there was an inside and an outside. People of God in Goshen. I want flies on Egypt, but no flies in Goshen. God is using flies to make the line between the inside and the outside of his people clear. Inside the camp, outside of the camp of the people of God in the wilderness. Inside of Israel, outside of Israel. God wants a bright line between his people, not his people. And sure enough, the Old New Testament picks up precisely this kind of clarity. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers, says Paul. For what partnership is there between righteousness and lawlessness? Or what does a believer have in common with an unbeliever? Therefore, come out from among them and be separate says the Lord. Now, is, is Paul calling them to be a bunch of intolerant and exclusive people? Well, just the opposite. Unlike so many church leaders today, Paul knows that the church's evangelistic power depends in part on its distinctness, on keeping that line clear on being salt and light, as we thought about last night. It, it, it means, Paul means to, the whole New Testament means to hold up this, this church, which we said protects the gospel and displays the gospel, remember? Which means keeping the line clear. This is the diamond, this is not the diamond, right? And that is evangelistic powerful. So there's a sense in which you want to shut door, the door in people's faces, but it's, but it's a glass door. You want them to see through it. You want to invite them inside. Say, hey, this, this door swings pretty easily. If you repent and believe, we, we want you to be a part of us. But there is a door here. And you got to go through it. And friends, we, we, we understand that to be both loving and evangelistic. 
Okay, well, so far I've been talking about the skeletal structures. Is, is that all membership is? Is it just those skeletal structures? It's not very warm and cuddly to hug a skeleton, is it? Is there anything more to what membership is? Well, that's going to bring us back to all the biblical metaphors. If your church is healthy, membership will feel family-like, body-like, set-apart holy temple-like, citizenship-like, and so on. And to illustrate this, the best I can think to do is just, just to give you a number of snapshots of, of church as I have experienced and known it. It looks like a small group of single young men visiting an old widow on a Friday night instead of going out on the town in Washington, D.C. like so many single young men might do. It, it looks like a group of single young women inviting an elder's wife to their small group and asking her for wisdom and counsel and, and being a single woman and looking towards career or or marriage and so forth. It looks like one younger brother in the faith saying to an older brother in the faith, I can't read my Bible, and I'm just stagnant in the faith. Can, can I come over to your house every morning and just do my quiet times with you? And doing that for two years straight, every day of the week? It looks like a white woman realizing that she harbors racism in her heart, confessing that racism to an African-American brother and his wife and that brother and his wife forgiving this woman and helping her repent fully of her racism. It looks like a group of Asian-American college students designing, deciding to join for the first time in their lives a non-Asian church. And kind of in the beginning, huddling together after the service, because that's who they know, but, but in time, sort of spreading and being absorbed into the whole congregation. It looks like crying with a couple after their fifth miscarriage in a row. Looks like rebuking a man for the way he speaks to his wife. It looks like rejoicing with that brother when he gets the big job promotion and puts him above it and you, you wanted that job promotion, but he got it, but now I'm going to rejoice with him and not just covet. It looks like one young mother visiting another young mother who happens to live across the street every day at 5 p.m. when the kids are melting down and going crazy and dads aren't home yet, but they need to find ways to survive and encourage one another. It looks like members praying and pursuing evangelistic opportunities together, praying and pursuing work together in a nearby soup kitchen and a gospel mission, praying and pursuing work together in a nearby crisis pregnancy center. It looks like giving thousands annually to care for other members in need. It looks like looking for ways not just to hire a youth pastor and outsource all youth ministry to the youth pastor, but actually saying to the congregation, hey friends, what can we do to help one another raise each other's teenagers and set a good example for them and draw them into our family lives together? It looks like thinking all week, I can't wait to be with the family again on Sunday. It looks like having that awkward conversation where you confess sin or help others confess sin. 
It looks like regular meals, regular prayers, regular texts and emails and phone calls and just stopping by. I remember when I was younger and growing up in a kind of typical evangelical church, reading Acts chapter 2 and thinking, that can't be real. That, that, that's first century stuff, right? You know, by God's grace, I've been a member of several churches now that feel like this. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread and prayers. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts. Church membership is not just an institutional thing or a Sunday-only thing, but it's not less than that. Church membership is also a blood and guts thing. It's an every day of the week thing. We need both. We need the skeletal structure. We need the flesh and the blood, and they, they hold each other together. Third question, question three, what are the responsibilities of church membership? Well, one, we talked about it last night. I'll be very brief. Number one, help preserve the gospel. Help protect the gospel. Everyone joining your church, you should say, as an ordinary member of this church and baptized Christian, you're helping us preserve the gospel in this ministry. We see that playing out clearly in, in Galatians 1, as, as we considered last night. Paul doesn't upbraid the pastors, but the members. Job responsibility to help affirm gospel citizens. Every member of your church is responsible for preserving the gospel by guarding one another in the gospel, protecting and preserving gospel citizens. And we, we see this playing out also in the early church. 1 Corinthians 5, he doesn't address the elders in a matter of discipline, but the entire congregation. Remove him. They're to protect the gospel by guarding one another in the gospel. Job responsibilities three and four, discipling other church members and evangelizing non-Christians. Discipling other church members and evangelizing non-Christians. I can refer to other talks that we're, we're doing to fill those out. Here's the bottom line. When somebody comes to join my church and I'm doing a church membership class, I'll often say something like this. Listen, by, by joining this church, we understand that you are submitting to the oversight of this congregation, but also you're participating with us in the affirmation and oversight of others. So we understand that you have a job to do. So that if the elders start to compromise or teach false things, it's up to you to fire us. We understand if you see a brother going down in flames, it's your job to reach out and help grab that brother. We understand that this is not a spectator sport. This is not a place for consumers. This, again, is a, is a job. And we need the help. So, if you join, this is what we're calling you to. Not showing up anonymously for 90 minutes on somebody's, but getting to know us all week. Because we need the help. You sure you want to join? Just what we're trying to communicate to everybody joining Church membership is essential for a healthy church. Church discipline. Here's the second half of my one talk on membership and discipline. And PJ, how much time do I have? 25 minutes? 20 minutes? 12.30? Okay. I kind of want to see if there's any questions right now. Give you a breather. What's that? 
Stand up if you presently practice church membership. That kind of oversight and affirmation I've been describing. So what do we think? Five-sixths of you? Most of you? Okay, thank you. Have a seat. Stand up. Let's transition now. Stand up if your church has practiced church discipline in the last five years. And by discipline, I mean the final step of putting somebody out. Okay, a little over half. All right. Have a seat. Thank you. Any other questions you think would be helpful? PJ, Mark? Well, let's think about that second one now. I have eight questions. Eight questions. One, what does the Bible say? And these questions will move pretty quickly. Question one, what does the Bible say? Matthew 18, if you want to look at that, you guys know that. Verse 15, if a brother sins against you, go and show him his fault just between the two of you. If he listens to you, you've won your brother over. But if he will not listen, take one or two others along so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, treat him as you would a pagan or tax collector. What's going on? Okay, somebody's sinning, confronted privately, doesn't stop, confronted a second time, still doesn't stop. Eventually taken to the church, confronted by the church, still doesn't shop, stop, and then he is excluded or excommunioned, ex put away from the church, put out of the Lord's table. Notice there's a concern to keep this as small as possible, but there's also a willingness to take this to the whole church if necessary. Still, this, this is startling, isn't it? I mean, doesn't Jesus tell us not to judge back in chapter 7? I mean, churches are supposed to be loving. They're supposed to be gracious. What's going on here? Well, it's not just Jesus who talks this way. Paul does this as well. 1 Corinthians 5, verse 1. 1 Corinthians 5, verse 1. Paul confronts the church for tolerating a man who's sleeping with his stepmother. Verse 2, he says, Shouldn't you rather have been filled with grief and put out of your fellowship the man who did this? Verse 5, finally, hand this man over to Satan so that his soul may be saved. Put him out. Membership in the kingdom of God. Now, in this situation, Paul doesn't even tell the church to warn the individual. Apparently, they all already know about it, unlike Matthew 18. And also, apparently, Paul's like, this man's unrepentant. Whereas in Matthew 18, you have a test for repentance. But here, it's clear that the church knows. It's clear. Put him out. Are you not to judge those inside the church, he says in verse 12. What is that all about? Question two, what exactly is church discipline? What exactly is it? Well, think about the words discipline and disciple. Etymological cousins, right? And part of how we disciple or make disciples is through discipline. Uh, think about what you do when you're teaching math. You, you know, teach the lesson on the board, and then you walk around, you look at the students' answers, and you up, oh, you forgot to carry the seven, and so forth. And you correct as part of teaching, right? Teaching and correcting go together as the process of making disciples. And when we're using the word church discipline, we're talking about typically that second half, the corrective half. 
uh, might start privately between you and me, two sisters, whatever, together, and eventually, if need be, it goes to the entire church. That's what discipline is. It's not saying we know that you're an unbeliever. It's not an act of retribution, punishment. It's saying, well, remember what, I, what church membership is. If, if church membership is that affirmation, what is church discipline? It's, it's simply that, that final step. It's, it's the removal of that affirmation. It's saying we, we as a congregation can no longer stand before Chevrolet, Maryland, and say, Joe's a Christian. We're not saying we can see with x-ray vision, Holy Spirit eyes, that Joe is definitely a non-Christian. We're not the Holy Spirit. But we are saying we're no longer going on record. And so we're removing that affirmation now. That's what it means. And, and, and is it, as I said, is it an act of retribution or punishment? No, it's, it's a loving word of warning. It's a waving in the arm saying, bridge, bridge is out ahead, guy. You need to repent because we have no assurance that you're headed to glory like you say you are. Question three, that brings us to the third question. Is this really loving? Can church discipline really be loving? My, my first experience with discipline was with a, um, a jogging buddy of mine. And uh, we would have lunches together and meals together. And then one day we were sitting at lunch and we were talking about uh, a, a woman I was dating at the time. And then, then I, I turned the tables. I said, well, what, what about you? You know, we, we, never, we never talk about who you're dating. And he said, well, that's because I'm gay. You never told me that. He said, well, yeah. I said, well, does that mean you, you desire that or does that mean... You actually are pursuing that. He said, well, I have a boyfriend. And I said, well, you know what the Bible says about that. And he said, well, you know, I struggled with it for a long time, Jonathan, but I just couldn't get rid of the desires. And, and one day God told me it was okay. And I said, no, he didn't. And so... And that conversation continued in that vein, and I eventually went and got another brother, Brad. Brad came with me, and, and we, we confronted this individual together. He continued to be convicted that God told him it was okay, so eventually the elders got involved. The elders had the same conversation with him. He was certain in his mind God told him it was okay, and eventually this went to the whole church, and, and the man was removed, excommunicated from membership in the church. Was this unloving of us to do? We all know precisely how the world would answer that question right now, right? Love is love. Was that unloving of us? Let's think about what the Bible says love is. 1 John 5, 3. This is love for God to obey his commands. John 14, 21. Whoever has my commands and obeys them, he is the one who loves me. John 14, 23. If anyone loves me, he will obey my teaching. John 15, 10 and 11. If you obey my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have obeyed my Father's commands and remain in his love. Friends, could it be that we need a, and the members of our church 
Churches need a radical reorientation of what love is. That love is not what Hollywood calls love. Love is not what two gay men call love. Love is not what parents who spoil their children and refuse to discipline call love. Think about Hebrews 12 for a second where we read, For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline you have had to endure. God is treating you as sons. In the Bible, love, go back to the flow chart. In the Bible, love leads to obedience, and obedience is a sign of love. You can just fill that out in your notes, a little flow chart. Love leads to obedience, and obedience is a sign, is a picture of love. It's that way throughout Scripture. Which is to say, brothers, we should practice discipline fundamentally for love's sake. Love for the individual Christian's sake, that they might be brought to repentance. Love for weaker sheep in the flock's sake, lest a little bit of yeast work through the whole batch of dough. Love for the non-Christian neighbor's sake, that they might not think the church is just like the world, that we might actually be salt and light, and of course, love for Christ's sake, that we would represent and extol and display his name rightly. Why should we practice discipline? For obedience's sake, and obedience is a sign of love, love's sake. Question four, what are the results of doing this? Well, there's two, at least. First, church discipline grows the church in love and holiness like correcting that student's mistakes on the math assignment actually grows and teaches the student Hebrews 12 continues God disciplines us for our good that we may share in his holiness no discipline seems pleasant at the time but painful later on however it produces and this is the NIV rendering a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it I love that language a harvest kind of you picture rolling fields of golden wheat but it's it's actually rolling fields of righteousness and peace what does that look like rolling fields of righteousness and peace in my church i want that whatever that is how do you get that well in part by discipline i remember a case of, of discipline uh when a man left his wife for another woman, a few days later, I was having dinner with a young man in the church. And we went out for dinner, and then I, was dry, I drove him home, and he was about to get out of the car, and he opened up the car door to get out, and then he, and then he sat back down, he closed the car door, and he turned and he looked at me, and he said, Jonathan, I, I can't stop thinking about what Elder Greg announced on, on, on Sunday night about this individual leaving his wife. He said, I hate sin. And I said, yeah, it's terrible. It's a killer. It's a deceiver. He's like, I don't want that ever happen to me. Like, I know, brother. We need to be watchful. Help each other remain watchful. 
What was going on, his name was David, what was going on in David's heart on Sunday night when Elder Greg came up and said to the church, so-and-so has left his wife, we're calling you to get involved. What was going on in, in, in David's heart as he was sitting there? It was learning to hate sin. It was learning to recognize, I need help. I need to talk to people. It grows the church in righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. That's what discipline does. Result two, it presents a compelling witness for the world. It's how we preserve our identity as a contrast society, as a counter culture. Dear friends, I urge you as aliens and strangers in the world to abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God in the day he visits us. We, sh we should be distinct in our holiness. Our holiness is compelling. Remember as I said last night, he, even as it's the flying the, the ointment, it's also the ointment. And of course, we should be distinct in our love. A, a new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, all men will know you are my disciples, if you love one another. We need distinct love, Jesus-like love. Question five. Very practically, which sins require discipline? Uh, the way I describe it, you know, you, you go through the New Testament, you look at different lists that, that show up. Those lists aren't meant to be comprehensive. Uh, I think they're, to be, demonstra they're to, be, to be demonstrative. If I were to summarize the data, I would say any sin you might privately correct with a brother or sister in Christ. I remember one time a sister said to me in the hall hallway of our church building, she said, Jonathan, you can just be so selfish. And I said, what are you talking about? She said, well, do you remember when this happened and that happened and that happened and then there was this time? I was like, yeah, okay. <laughs> Point granted. I guess I can be a little selfish. And what did that sister do? Well, that sister helped me on that day grow a little bit out of my selfishness by privately correcting me. So I think there's any, there's any, any sin you, you, you can have those kinds of conversations. What about the ones we take up on stage, as it were, that we, we go public with? Well, I think it needs to be three things. Verifiable, uh, significant, and unrepentant. Verifiable, established by the evidence of two or three witnesses, says Jesus. So, in other words, I'm not going before you and saying, you know, listen, I think we're going to bring before you the before the church for being greedy. Well, how do you know I'm greedy? You know, I'm just looking at you and I can tell. Something needs to be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses, which is to say, we all agree on the facts here. We might disagree on the interpretation of those facts, but we, but we agree this happened, he says it happened, she said it happened, there's no dispute about that, right? If you go before the church just with your interpretation of somebody's heart, what are you going to do? You're going to divide the church. So, so number one, verifiable. Number two, unrep I mean, uh, significant. <clears throat> this is a harder one. Significant. There are some sins that I understand that we, as fallen, finite creatures, may continue into the end of our days, and you would not necessarily bring before the whole church. For instance, suppose you have a man who is 
selfishly eating all the ice cream in his house. This is hypothetical. And his wife is like, stop selfishly eating all the ice cream. He's like, oh, you know, it's, it's kind of there for all of us, but he keeps doing it. Now, brothers, you might decide to bring that before the church. I personally would not. Again, it has to reach a level of significance. Now, let's suppose that same man leaves his wife for another woman. Well, we, we've moved from this side of the spectrum over to this side of the spectrum. Okay? Now, what's the difference between this side of the spectrum and this side of the spectrum? Well, over here, I, in partnership with the church, don't like it, but will continue to affirm your profession of faith till the end. I can understand how somebody can have the Holy Spirit of God in them, be born again, and yet continue to persist in selfishly eating all the ice cream in the house. Whereas over here, at this end of the spectrum, I don't understand how you can claim to have the Holy Spirit of God in you to declare yourself a believer before the nations and yet leave you your wife. At least we as a church will not be involved in that. We're going to remove our affirmations. I think there needs to be a second level, of, or a second matter of significance. And then finally, of course, unrepentant person's been challenged and challenged and challenged and over time proves unrepentant. Uh, go back to my earlier story of my, my, my jogging running partner. It was verifiable, we all agreed. It was significant. He was pursuing uh, sexually immoral relationships and it, it was clearly unrepentant. Question number six, how quickly should a church act? How quickly should it act? Well, sometimes I think discipline can move quite slowly. And this will be the case when a sinner shows some interest in fighting sins. It's not just the nature of the sin that needs to be considered. It's the nature of the sinner, him or herself. There's a difference, brothers, between weak and rebellious. And a lot of your pastoral work is going to discern, is this person just weak or is this a person who is Rebellious. Paul instructs, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. Uh, different sinners, to put it bluntly, require different strategies. And if you're a halfway decent pastor, you know that. If you have different children, you know that, right? I remember working with one brother who was involved in a kind of addiction. I remember walking with that brother for, for, for years uh, because he would confess and he would do what I asked him to do. And then he would stumble again and confess again and do what I asked him to do again. And there was times I, I doubted. I remember sitting in a Burger King with him once and he, here he was confessing his sin, taking the initiative, confessing his sin. I remember thinking, buddy... I, I got nothing left to say to you. I'm, I've kind of used all the tools in my tool belt I have. You know, carrot, stick. I got nothing left to say. And I remember thinking, should I, should, I, should I bring this to the other elders? And nonetheless, he was committed to keep going. And so I'm going to keep walking with him. I, I remember one time when I was reaching out to him and he wasn't replying. And a, a week went by, a couple weeks, eventually a month went by. Calling, texting, emailing, didn't reply. Finally... One day he calls me up. He said, sorry, I've, I've been a bit elusive. Uh, i got to admit to you, Jonathan, it's been really bad lately. I've been deep in it. Oh, man, I'm sorry. And he said, I'll, I'll be honest, I don't want out. 
but I want to want out. Okay, I got something to work with there. A bruised reed he will not break. A smoldering wick he will not snuff out. Okay, I'll, I'll fan that little bit of smoldering wick see, so we get more fire going. Okay, somebody like that, I'm just I'm going to keep walking with. When it finally gets to the point where you're like, yeah, this, this person is lying to me, deceiving to me, deceiving themselves, and then you'll take it to the next level. Question seven, how should we interact with someone who's been disciplined? Well, I think family members of a disciplined individual should continue to fulfill family obligations. The wife of the disciplined husband does not have her marriage broken. She has her church membership relationship broken with her husband. The son of the father, the brother of the sister. That the family institution is still intact. It's the new covenant church membership relationship which is broken. So the family member should continue to fulfill family obligations as set down in scripture. Nonetheless, that family member and the rest of the church needs to interact with the individual in a way that makes it clear we're no longer an us. We're no longer a we. Paul says, with such a person do not even eat. At the very least, that means the Lord's Supper. Understanding that in kind of an ancient Near Eastern hospitality, fellowship-giving sense. It means I, you and I are no longer getting together and, and sharing you know, meals together and talking about football and hanging out like everything is just fine. We're not doing that. If we, if we are getting together, whether it's at Starbucks or, or not, we're talking about repentance. A new severity, a new awkwardness is coming into our relationship one and now, right now. We do hope the person ordinarily will continue to attend the gathering of the church. We're not shunning them. We want them to sit under the preaching of the word. We're, we have a declarative authority, not a coercive authority that puts them out of geographic space. That's not the authority the church has. Rather, we have a declarative authority to say they're, they're not of us Any longer. Number eight, when do you restore someone from discipline? Well, restoration occurs when there's true signs of what? Repentance. That's pretty clear, pretty easy. Now, discerning whether or not somebody is repentant, that's harder, right? That, that, that's what you're going to have long elder meetings about and sometimes even disagree with one another. Sometimes it's clear a man's left his wife, he's come back. Praise the Lord. Other times, matters of addiction, it's harder to discern. Nonetheless, that's what you are looking to affirm. And once a church decides to restore a repenting individual to its fellowship in the table, I don't think there should be a probation period. I don't think there is second-class citizenship. Rather, I think the church should publicly pronounce its forgiveness. John 20, 23. It should affirm its love for the repenting individual. 2 Corinthians 2.8, and it should celebrate. Think of the father, the prodigal son, Luke 15.24. Now, I was a member of Capitol Hill for on and off for some 20 years, and in that time we had to remove people for any number of things, from adultery to public drunkenness to wrongful divorce to non-attendance and more. By God's grace, most church discipline never reaches the whole body. 
let's say 95 to 98% of it just stops with the two individuals or maybe the two and three. But two or three times a year on average, as a member of that church, uh, we would remove somebody. Now as a member of Chevrolet Baptist, I can think of only one occasion in the last few years we, we've had to remove somebody. But I can also think of wonderful stories of restoration. I remember there was one time, and this was at Capitol Hill, one time a brother had been removed from the church for lying to members of the church and stealing from them to support his drug addiction. And then a couple of years passed, and David, the, the same guy I mentioned a few moments ago about Jonathan, I hate sin, well, that same David begins spending time with this guy, reading the Bible with them. And I remember the evening when this brother came up and stood in the pulpit before the whole congregation, read out his confession to us, more preached his confession to us. Sin against God, I've sinned against you, lied to you, stole from you. I love my drugs more than I loved you and the Lord Jesus. The, the, the chairman said, any questions? There were no. We asked the guy to step out of the room. Said, okay, any further questions? And finally the chairman said, or the person leading the meeting said, all those in favor of restoring him, say aye. Aye. All those opposed, nay. It's quiet. So ordered. And then he said, I tell you what, let's bring him back in and let's have that same vote in front of him this time. Yeah, good idea. Brought him back in. All those in favor of extending the hand of fellowship, extending our forgiveness, and restoring brother so-and-so as a member of the church, say aye. This time doubly loud, aye. All those opposed, nay. Crickets. So ordered. Brothers, the Holy Spirit is wiser than we are. More loving than we are. We can trust his word and what he's inspired for us. When he talks about the tough tool of discipline. Discipline is part of being a healthy church. Should I pray? I'll pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that we can trust it. We pray, Lord, that you would help us to be faithful to it and wise in following it. In Christ's name, amen.